Good morning. My name's Alan Cunningham. This morning, I'm going to be reading the scriptures from Acts 5, 17 to 32. <clears throat> the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to preach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what would this come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Thank you, Alan. Alan is one of those guys. You know, I have to comment every time somebody reads, and I hope that doesn't discourage you from ever reading. <laughs> I was thinking about that one time. I was like, this is probably having an adverse effect. People are like, I don't want him to say anything about me or anything. Um, but Alan's just one of those guys that when um, somebody says his name, there's at least three people within listening uh, range that will say, oh, I love Alan. Sometimes they'll slow down. I love Alan. I get it. And his wife's even better. So it's pretty, pretty crazy. Anyway, thank you very much for that reading. Really appreciate it. Today's text is one of those examples of, um, the, uh, the, the kind of the homework that you can do ahead of time before we come to a passage in the notes and the handout that you've been given. The very bottom of the sermon notes is next week's text. And so I always encourage people to read ahead a little bit because we won't be able to cover every aspect of these longer narratives. We're getting through a major portion of an entire chapter, uh, so much so that I, I even had to turn the the rest of the this chapter into a part two next week. So um, so 
do the homework, if you will, and use it as devotional. Ask the Lord to start pointing things out to you from the scriptures uh, so it'll make your time even here on a Sunday more fruitful because you'll come prepared and ready to hear some of the things that we'll be discussing. But you're recognizing a pattern now early into the book of Acts. We're seeing that there is this great display of power sent by the Lord in his own timing, in his own way, for his own purposes, which then gives those that are witnessing the power or or demonstrating that power an opportunity to testify of true things about God, about who he is, about what he's doing. And so the powerful display paves way to the proclamation of truth. And then that is met with a resistance. It's met with persecution. It would cause us to think so is the formula broken here that God is getting started with something and, and it's going well. It's starting to uh, burgeon into something that is really useful to the church only then to have it thwarted by these acts of persecution. Is it one of those uh, three steps forward, two steps back kind of endeavors? But I don't think that's what we see. What we see is the flourishing of the church as a result in direct real relation, retaliation to the persecution that the church is experiencing. Persecution is nothing new to the church of Jesus Christ from the time of the apostles till several centuries later. There were these organized persecutions, these acts of resistance Church history will tell you that there was 10 of these very systematic kind of um, intentional persecutions. In fact, in somewhere in that period of roughly 100 years of even being considered to be illegal as a Christian, the church is no stranger to persecution. The men that we're reading about in the book of Acts and the other writers of gospel accounts and those names that will be familiar to us as we're studying the New Testament we're marching towards an end that most of us, perhaps all of us, would shudder to think if that was in our future. Matthew died by the sword. Mark was dragged through the streets of Alexandria. Luke was hanged from an olive tree in Greece. John was burned in a cauldron of boiling oil and then exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. He was finding it unworthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Savior. So requested an upside down crucifixion. James was beheaded in Jerusalem. The other James thrown from a high pinnacle and beaten to death. Philip was hanged. Bartholomew scourged and beaten to death. Andrew was bound to a cross, preached until he died, proclaiming the truth of God until he took his last breath. Thomas was run through with a lance. Jude was executed by arrows. Matthias and Barnabas both stoned and beheaded, and we know Paul was beheaded in Rome. We see the end result, or the continuing result, I should say, is why Tertullian said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What, what the world intended for snuffing out the truth of, of who Jesus is and the offense that that is to people who are living their best lives and focused on themselves, they will go to any lengths to tune it out, including even celebrating in the death of those that are proclaiming that message. 
Now, death itself is not in our text today. We are very early in this process of the, of the expansion of the church. But what we're going to see in this text is, is a practice towards that end. Obedience that is playing out in the simplest of commands from God is going to prepare these men to die the most heroic deaths that still cause us a memorial for today. And the heart of this obedience is found in verse 29, which is this little golden nugget buried in our text, where Peter and the apostles answered, they said, we must obey God rather than men. This is the crux of, of what is going to fuel the apostles to march towards these heroic ends. It, it reveals to us a focus of men willing to follow Jesus no matter the cost. And even in somewhat of a kind of insane degree, we would look at from the outside looking in that they actually relish it because of what it means and who it relates to. Paul, in processing the suffering and the deficiencies and the things that were anguishing him, Paul was a man of extreme suffering. In 2 Corinthians 12, he said that God's answer to his suffering, we know famously, was, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. We're sensing that it mattered more to him to be related to Jesus, even if it was through his weaknesses. Verse 10, for the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses, with insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities because my values are all upside down is what he's saying. Paul used to be a very personally strong individual. He will come on the scene here very shortly as one of the great persecutors of the church, one who would have been happy to see the death of all of these men who were proclaiming the truth of Jesus, only to be brought to his knees and now relishing in his own weakness so that the power of Christ could be made strong in his life. So going through this text this morning, my question for us is, do we desire obedience to the Lord no matter the cost? Now, we're going to be tempted to think about just the big day, the day when maybe our end is in sight, or maybe that time that preachers have been talking about now for decades in our country, that there'll be a time where you'll have to decide, is it Jesus or is it your life? And we sometimes can talk ourselves out of thinking about that because it seems distant. We're sensing the persecution. We're talking about standing up for the lives of the unborn. We're talking about getting maligned in all of these other ways and stuff, but it seems still somewhat removed. We could go about our day-to-day actions if we wanted to. We could turn a blind eye to some of the things going on out there and not feel a lot of the heat. And so we have a tendency to distance that question saying, well, when the time comes, I'll be ready. But I think today what we're going to see is why obedience to Christ is not just a thing that we can flip the switch on at the last minute, but it is also the most rewarding life that we can live. In kind of taking the angle from this text of wanting us to see the benefits, this is how good God is to us. This is why our God is different from any other quote unquote small G God that anybody else serves. Our God says, here's what's right to do. Here's what I, here's what I require. And I will bless you in the process of living it out. We should be better than needing a reward, right? 
for somebody that's so gracious, forgiven us our sins, saved us from hell. We shouldn't need a reward, but we do. We're human beings. We need the little treat for doing the trick sometimes. Now, we don't earn any of this favor. God just gives it to us, but he's so gracious to us that in the quote-unquote earning or in the doing, he says, I'm going to bless your life as well. So in keeping with that train of thought, I want us to see that there are some incredible benefits for, for being obedient. First of which is that obedient followers are freed from the prison of self-pursuit. I'm going to just repeat a good portion of our text uh, just to set the stage again. So we're going back to verse 17 when we see that the high priest rose up. We know who these cats are, right? We know these are the guys that are running things like the mob. Their family is in order. They can appoint people. They're making sure that their connections to the Roman government are staying intact. And so they are rising up. We're going to see them rising up, rising up. And all who were with them, that is the party of the Sadducees, and they were what? Filled with jealousy. Their motive is revealed to us here by Dr. Luke. Verse 18, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. So here's our pattern. There's the miracle. There's the demonstration of power. We don't have a lot of details about, was this a back door? How the guards not see them? Were they sleeping? What was going on? We don't know. All we know is that God showed up again. The Holy Spirit doing the thing that he does. And he opens the prison doors, brings them out. And then the simple command was, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, I'm going to use the metaphor of the open prison doors to relate something to our culture. Is it not the highest acclaim of anybody now to be freed to be who? Themselves. If the prison doors of all the things that have held you back from everything you, you've suffered under, if those were suddenly thrown open, what are you free to go do? Go and be you. However you define it, however you want to express it. We see the apostles finding freedom in going out and doing more service the very thing that landed them in the jail cell to begin with. I would call that countercultural. But this is what is happening because there's an emptiness in self-expression. No one's allowed to admit this. You probably know this. We're not supposed to admit the fact that for all of our chasing of ourselves, we come up empty all the time. We have the benefit of social media to look like it's working so that we can seem happy, fulfilled, and, and, and living out our destiny. But the reality is hearts are breaking everywhere because we didn't make us. It's impossible for us to know what makes us happy. It's impossible for us from one minute to the next to know what we really want in life because we aren't our creator. And that's the sad reality that many in our culture are coming to conclusions in. Because we were made by somebody, because we were fashioned, as our sign also says, in our mother's womb, lovingly and intricately, we have a manual. We have somebody who knows what's best for our lives. And the more we deny that, the more we run into the emptiness of this so-called self-expression. 
the apostles were free to run. You could go now. They had a choice to make. It doesn't seem like they even thought about it, but they had a choice to make. I never want to be facing that again. That was a close one. Jesus is going to have to find some other messengers because I cannot do another night in jail. They could have been free perhaps to run to the ends of themselves or to what they perceived to be safety, but they were sent to preach. They were sent to do the same thing that landed them in that jail cell to begin with. What would motivate somebody to do that? Well, we've already walked through the fact that the the whole motivation here ends up being an incredible proof for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Cowards don't become heroes overnight just because they've willed it into existence. They saw something that they can't explain away. They have experienced something that they can't deny. That is that Jesus did in fact die for their sins. He did in fact rise from the dead and he has in fact forgiven them of all of their atrocities and now they cannot turn their backs on that. I I wouldn't even think that it's something that even occurs to them that they could because they're so convinced of it now. These men are acting from a standpoint of having a higher purpose, a higher calling than just, boy, I don't want to get in that jam again. And this is what we all crave. We all crave somebody to spell out to us what life is about and how to go about fulfilling it. And these guys had found it. Because purpose isn't self-assigned. It's designated from somebody above us. It's designated to us by somebody who understands what life is to be about. And these men were receiving their purpose directly from the word of God. And it was simple as walk through these doors, walk into the temple and teach the truth. Remember they said before in a previous chapter, we're simply telling you, we're just simply witnesses of what we've seen and heard. Very basic instruction. As we've been studying as a church, there's been so many of you that have come out and joined us on Wednesday nights for our um, discipleship growth track. And the gospel fluency portion of that has been encouraging us to be able to share our faith in meaningful and helpful ways, not robotic and rote ways so that we can just kind of organize the mission and get more people in the building, but to really touch the points of people's lives that need Jesus. And to reflect on the ways in which God has fulfilled our lives, how he's answered our biggest longings and and fears and questions so that we can communicate that to others around us. And in studying all this, one thing is just jumping off the page to me and what we're talking about in our table discussions and what Pastor Tom's been leading us in and stuff is that we are to be looking for expressions of longing or those expressions of emptiness that people are expressing back to us rather than just summing it up in the black and white points of the things that we disagree with them at what they are standing for, what they are clamoring for, what they are proclaiming to us are coming from a place of emptiness and a longingness that somehow this order needs to be made right. This chaos needs to be solved. Where is that coming from? Since the fall of man, we have all been experiencing that fall in our own little corners of the world and in different ways. Jeff Vanderselt, who wrote the book Gospel Fluency, tells us that as we're having these conversations and looking at the ways in which we all experience the fall of mankind, he says to ask the question, whom or what is the fundamental problem people blame for the things that are broken in their lives? I think that's an important question. It's one that you and I need to wrestle with. What are the things that we've said? This break in my life doesn't belong there. It shouldn't be. 
Do we then go to the next step and say, how did Jesus come to fulfill that break? How did he come to heal that wound? Because the answer is there and the answer is found in his word. There is an emptiness of self-expression that the apostles were not tempted to engage in at all because they were convinced that Christ was risen and that their sins were forgiven. And they also understood the futility of earthly investments. We go back to the words of Jesus in Matthew 6. He's giving his sermon on the mount. He is proclaiming the kingdom of God having come to earth and in the process of continuing to come. And as he's explaining the differences in all of these things that people have looked at it this way, but the kingdom of God says it's this way. You think it's uh, something over here, but it's really something over there. And he's just turning everything upside down. And when it comes to value and where we invest our lives, he says this in chapter 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And we're not going to be there right away, are we? So he's talking about a future investment where neither moth nor rust destroys or where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The apostles know that they're standing before a council who has 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 clamored for their slice of the pie. This is their opportunity to regain control. This is their opportunity to stay on the throne and they won't let it go for any reason because that's where their treasure is. That's where their heart is. These men were living for an eternal investment, one that couldn't be taken away by no matter what the decision of this council was. No matter what those prison bars represented, their eternal investment could not be robbed from them. I've been starting to study Ecclesiastes a little bit in hopes and anticipation that maybe that's where we go after we study the book of Acts. And I've always been intrigued by Ecclesiastes because it sounds so pessimistic and negative in its writing from Solomon. But really what it is, it's a deeper dive into the emptiness or what he calls the vanity of the the fixation of the things of this earth. And that even though they are meant to be enjoyed to a certain point, even though they are meant to um, be experienced, they are meant to point us to the creator and the maker of all those things. And only in relationship with him do we have any value and any purpose. This is what the apostles are experiencing, and this is what's fueling them to step forward in obedience no matter the threat. They're freed from the prison of self-pursuit because they've found their, found their freedom of purpose in who Jesus is and what he's done. They've been given a mission bigger than comfort and safety. They were told as Jesus was leaving this earth, he says, go and what? Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he promises to be with us. He promises to, to fuel us in that great commission. Is your mission so simple? Is, is the focus of your life, the daily pursuit of your heart as basic as I need to make disciples for Jesus? If, if I were to ask what's on your mental list right now, and I don't want you to ask what's on mine, and it's a one way street, I've got the pulpit. You don't get to ask. But if I were to really be honest with you about the things that are on my list, maybe many of those things or some of those things might touch that overall goal of making disciples. But I can tell you if that was my burning passion in all things, then the other cares that are on that list would pale in comparison 
They might even have to be on a page two somewhere and I'll get to it later. It's not a calling just for the professionals. It's not a calling just for those who are are hyper-religious. It's not a calling for those who really just need Jesus more than me because I've got a little bit more satisfaction in my career or my family or my friends. It's a calling for all of those who call in the name of Jesus Christ. The calling for, for them is the same calling for us. They told him in verse 20, go and stand and speak to the people all the words of this life. What life? The real one is what he's saying. Not the one that they're caught up in, not the one that they're distracted by, those poor Sadducees who are who are uh, thinking there's nothing else really after this and then there isn't any resurrection of the dead and these miracles aren't really happening before our eyes and stuff. They're just denying all of this movement of God because it threatened what the, where their treasure was, which is in the earthly throne that they had ascended to. The apostles were demonstrating for us that eternal investment, that, that's what yields eternal dividends. Uh, just yesterday, we said goodbye to a dear sister in the Lord, Amy Ludic, who is um, one of the great champions of keeping your eyes on eternity. Many of you in this room are friends of Scott and Amy. Scott was one of our elders for many years before because of Amy's um, health condition. They relocated to the Atlanta, Georgia area many, some, several years ago, I should say, so that she could get the best care. They could enter into that stage of their life in a semi-retirement fashion, growing in their relationship. And those of you that know Scott and Amy, you love Scott and Amy. And uh, they are just um, approachable uh, godly, sincere people. We often say on our elder team that I think Don has said it most recently, you know, that Scott, when you think of what is an elder, we just often think of Scott Ludic because of his diligence and his humility to the, to the process. And he said goodbye yesterday to the love of his life after her, um, battle with cancer. And yet in his update, the title was Amy is free. We say sentiments when we lose people. We say things about um, these times because it's really hard for us to process and wrap our heads around it. So we say things like, oh, they're in a better place. And, and we mean it to some extent, but not always do we know if that's true because we do believe there are two different dwellings in eternity. But we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Amy's eyes are on the Lord through all of this and that her... Freedom is now found because she has been released from the pain and the struggle and all of the misery that she endured so faithfully. The prison doors for her open to something that the rest of the observers of the world would see that as the prison awaiting, which would be the grave. But for her, she found her freedom. Why? Because her investments were eternal and not earthly. A second outcome of obedience in this text, I think, is that obedient followers frustrate the enemies of God, which is fun once in a while. If we're being honest, sometimes it's fun to put people in their place, but we try too hard. We don't do it the right way. And so in this text, we have an incredible example of the best way to do that and simply put, leave it up to the Lord. He'll be sure that that happens. So let's go back into our text in verse 24. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them. Think about this coming statement, wondering what this would come to. We'll get back to that in a second. And someone came and told them, 
Look, the men that you put in prison are standing in the temple and they're teaching the people. Imagine how that would have ruined. I mean, they had a night's sleep, right? Thinking we're finally going to deal with these guys tomorrow. We're all set. We finally got them under lock and key. And they're like, oh yeah, those guys that you think are sitting in the prison right now are in the temple doing what they always do. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force. A very important phrase. For they were afraid of being stoned by the people. I don't know if that was really what would have happened, but that was their fear. Verse 27, when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you filled Jerusalem with all your teaching. It's a great compliment. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Another important statement that we'll revisit here in a second. The apostles are walking into a situation where it would be beautiful for us if we're watching going, oh, I'd love to see these jerks get their coming up, you know, comeuppance, whatever that old phrase is. To get punched in the jaw. All this oppression, all of this false accusation, all of this clamoring for their power and that smug whatever stuff and everything. We'd love to just see them get it back and we want the apostles to be the delivery mechanisms of it. Stand up for yourselves. Set the record straight. That's not what happens. It says they, the, the, the Sadducees themselves are wondering what this would come to. Again, no miracles. They're not really in it for God's glory. Their only uh, focus is their political survival. So there's jealousy there. And 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 so what... What we want to see these guys do is react to this harshly. We want to see them stand up for themselves and be brave about this. But it says that they were brought not by force. Here's the admission statement. They said, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. What, what, by, by these guys not going by force, by them not putting up a fight, they are in the audience of these guys who are saying something that is going to entrap them. You intend to bring this man's blood on us. They had completely forgotten that they said that very same thing at Jesus' uh, trial. Back in Matthew 27, now the chief priests, who are they? Same family, same dudes. Same privilege, we like to say nowadays. The chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And the people answered. We just saw that they were the ones riling up the crowd, that the chief priests were getting, they were like using the crowd as a puppet. What's the phrase they said? He, his blood be on us and our children. You say a lot of things when all you're focused on is the here and now. You'll say anything to get out of a jam when the pressure's on. And they were making this wild statement. Who would have said that if they even thought there was a remote chance that they were putting the wrong guy away? His blood be on us and our children. Several weeks later, they're saying, you're filling Jerusalem with all your teaching and you're trying to pin this man's blood on us. Who do you think you are? They've done it to themselves. The Sanhedrin is 
experiencing the embarrassment of the exposure of their own inconsistencies. The people are recognizing these guys are, are feckless. These guys are, are just giving in to whatever the whim is of the moment in order to save their own hide. So much so that these guys were afraid we might even have rocks thrown at us by the people. They're starting to get over the game is what is going on here. What the Sadducees are experiencing is that self-preservation over integrity will result in self-destruction every time. Maybe not immediately, but it will come to find you. If all you're looking for is taking care of yourself in the moment and refusing the principle or the integrity of truth that you need to live by, and you give in to that pressure of self-preservation, it always comes to find you. So back to the apostles' response. There is a clear defiance of unjust authority happening in our passage. They were standing in the temple and they were teaching the people. Whose name were they teaching the people in? Jesus. Who were they told not to teach in the name of? Jesus. They were obeying simple orders. But the Sanhedrin was able to bring them, but not needing to use force. How could you do that? Because those that were preaching and teaching the name of Jesus must have agreed to walk with them. There is compliance and defiance. And yes, there is tension between the two and godly wisdom is needed every step of the way. There's a demonstration here happening in the passage that is a, a, a balance of respect and defiance. And the New Testament, if we study it, is full of this kind of teaching. We're just seeing it lived out by the simple reaction of these guys saying, well, the doors are open. I walked through those doors. I was told to go to the temple. I went to the temple. I was told to teach in the name of Jesus. I taught in the name of Jesus. Well, you got to come with us now and answer a few questions. Okay. I'm going to call this submission-ish. If we go to 1 Peter 2, which was a guidepost for the leadership of our church in the last several years, as we were thinking about where is it appropriate and when is it appropriate to defy the orders that are given to you from a human institution, we needed to be thorough and rigorous with our understanding and our interpretation of the scriptures. But understanding that there's going to be tension between compliance and defiance with every step we take. And not only did we just look at this passage in isolation, but we taught through the book in its context to have a better understanding of what was going on. And in particular, when we came to chapter two of first Peter, we saw in verses 13 through 17 that we were told to be subject for the Lord's sake to, he- to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor or supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. Live like people who the prison doors have opened for. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now, being mere human beings who are studying the scriptures and relying on the voice of the Holy Spirit, we struggled with whether or not we were right in every circumstance, and I'm sure we weren't. 
But one thing that we opted was to submit to what we understood the scriptures to teach us, even if the results didn't feel good, didn't seem um, uh, logistically expedient or any of those things. And then fortunately, and some of you, many of you were not here for this time period, but many of you were and understood that and walked in trust and obedience as well. But what we saw playing out here was I, I heard things kind of like in verse 14, where it says, the, um, uh, you know, obey the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. I heard that interpreted over and over again, that that's when you submit to them, when they are actually punishing evil and rewarding those who are doing good. And I said, well, that's not submission. That's just agreement. The reality is, is that submission is when we're doing the things that are going against either our will or going against the things that we think are right or any of those things in the time. But there's balance and there's tension to be found in the scriptures. In the same sentence that it says to honor the emperor, it says fear God. So we know as believers in Jesus Christ that the fear of God is to rule over everything else, including that which the emperor, the governor, whoever happens to be in charge, says to us. The fear of God carries the highest weight for us. We're more afraid of what um, what uh, someone can do to our, our, our soul than those that can do something to our body. So what are we seeing when we see this example here from the apostles? First off, each of these steps, by the way, pretty basic formula, is what we need to remember. We are in a politically charged atmosphere. Things are ramping back up again where the loudest voices are the ones that are being followed and all these kinds of things. And I believe that the Christians and followers of Jesus Christ have a different calling, a more strategic, a wiser, more uh, fruitful calling. And we're seeing it played out by these apostles here. First is we need to know the truth. The thing that concerns me, I'll say mildly, when it comes to the church having a, a megaphone voice in a social media context is we are at the point where the church knows the least about the scriptures, perhaps in church history. So we've got a louder voice with less knowledge of truth, and those two things can be a very troubling, deadly combination. What we see is that the apostles are able to go toe-to-toe with the false doctrine of the Sadducees. Their little jabs, the little quips that they send their way are all to kind of pinpoint the things that they know the Sadducees falsely believe. They're refuting their doctrine. So the apostles would be demonstrating to us that we need to stick to facts, not speculating. We can make everything, the things that we care about, the things that ruffle our feathers, we can add to it, thus saith the Lord, to a lot of things that God is not losing any sleep over. Or a lot of things that God has not said, this is what you're to do. Go in the temple and preach truth. So we have to be careful not to overly speculate, not to add to God's list of truth. Also, they obeyed clear orders. I've said this now a million times. Walk in, teach in the temple. The lesson for us there is to avoid conflating God's commands as though he's adding deeper to the list in all things. That isn't what's happening. We see them, though, speak boldly for truth. When given the audience after the great demonstration of power and they have the opportunity to speak what's really going on, they take full advantage of it and they pull no punches. They say, you killed Jesus. 
In fact, you killed him in a manner that you hung him on a tree, which all of our people know is meant to shame that person because the scripture says if anyone's hanged on a tree, they are cursed. You wanted our Messiah to look defeated, dragged through the mud and brought to his lowest point. That was your aim. And that's what we're resisting. He was, they were assaulting the piety of this quote unquote religious leadership group and saying, you've got this whole thing backwards. You have disrespected our savior. But you notice as they're doing this, they're just taking advantage of the platform given to him. They're demonstrating respectful behavior and respectful behavior, not being the first to be offended or not being offensive ourselves is often what opens wider doors of impact. And yes, I understand I'm speaking in sort of general terms and not giving a lot of specifics because the tension of, of compliance and defiance is always requiring us to be wise about these things. I like how Stott says this about the inevitability of us having to stand for truth. He says, if the authority concerned misuses its God-given power to command what God forbids or forbid what God commands, then the Christian's duty is to disobey the human authority in order to obey God's. There is a point where you and I will speak truth to power, as we say. We will speak God's truth to those who oppose him. It's the manner in which we do it. It's the, it's the emotion that is in it, but is it all laced with respect and appropriateness for the time that we've been given? Will, will others see us as being the wise ones who are not easily frazzled or stirred up, but who are dead set on their, compa- on, on their convictions and are willing to stand for them? What we also see from the apostles is that they are seasoning everything with grace. We're going to get into this text next week where they actually say the reason why God's done all of these things is for your forgiveness, not for your condemnation. When our flesh is riled up, when we feel personally threatened or attacked, it's hard for us to obey God's command because we want to fight fire with fire. We want to fight back, stand for ourselves, justify our position. And instead of taking this personally, the apostles kept their eye on the reason why I'm standing here. The reason why I've been given this platform is to preach the gospel to you so that you too might turn and receive it and find forgiveness. In other words, saying to the Sadducees, I would love to be standing next to you in glory one day. Imagine having the wherewithal to say that in the midst of your of the threat being leveled at you. You see, our rants don't invite people to Jesus. I was so thrilled the other day to have brought um, my youngest daughters down to the Capitol building to kind of witness and see what participation we could have in the um, the hearing on the bill that we are now seeing the presentation this morning and, and fighting against that for standing up for life and and just seeing so many people. And honestly, I didn't know what to expect. I expected to see a lot of weird things taking place. Because it seems to be what we're known for these days is all these strange and bizarre presentations and things. And what I saw was a, a lines and lines of people faithfully standing quietly, respectfully, encouragingly in the rain in cold, chilly weather as they supported one another and then willing to have conversations with each other. And, and there was no, um, there was no feathers being ruffled from anything I could see. And then hearing the stories of those that waited hours and hours and hours to be heard in the Capitol itself. And when given their three minutes to speak, because they had so many submissions, they did it with respect 
and accuracy in speaking truth. More of this, I remember speaking with Carol Conley afterwards, and I just said, I'm just blown away by this. And he said it was an amazing thing to be a part of. Carol is the director of the Christian Civic League and one of the louder voices in rallying these kinds of participatory events. And he echoed the same thing. Couldn't believe, because we'd just been through so much where it's just lobbing bomb after bomb and the vitriol even coming from those who claim to have peace in Jesus Christ. And seeing it demonstrated that day was just highly encouraging. The questions that we ask for ourselves is, have we grown weary and disillusioned with the vain pursuit of following our own dreams? Are we starting to experience the emptiness that comes with not knowing what is God's best design for us? If this is you, I'd remind you that your purpose is not self-assigned. Find your purpose instead in obeying the simple command of God. He said that all of us should make disciples of Jesus before our time is up. And it's not about the numbers. It's not about the stage. It's not about any of those things. It's about faithfulness and finding that one person and working and guiding them to all the ways of Jesus. And then doing it again and doing it again and doing it again until he calls us home. I would also remind you, if you're feeling that way, that your earthly pursuits will yield earthly results. They will die with you in the grave. Instead, chase eternal investments and see what God will do to your perspective. Remember, where your treasure is, your heart will follow also, not the other way around. Are you concerned about the resistance that will come when you stick your neck out for Jesus and and simply testify of the things that you've seen and heard. That's what we're wrestling with a lot on Wednesday nights is where do those places of fear come from? How do we complicate it rather than just being simple, straightforward, and humble about it? We need to trust that God will defend us before our enemies. It's his job and his purpose to expose their inconsistent values and bring shame to their platforms. We don't have to freak out about that happening. He will do that for us. Instead, we're to practice grace in all of our endeavors to demonstrate that God is our defender and that he isn't willing for anyone to go without him, including our enemies. Understand that you can shape your desire. You're not some passive robot that says, well, this is just what I care about. We can change our desires for the things of God. We can practice obedience in Christ before we even feel like it, believe it or not, or else it would have been a cruel command to do so. And we can watch him grow our hearts towards his kingdom a little at a time. That way we can echo, as Paul would say, he considered in Romans eight eighteen. He considered that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Would you please stand? Let's pray about these things. Let's pray about our reaction and our response to these truths. Lord God, we are a people who often mean well but find ourselves guilty of not following through with our intentions and Lord somehow some way you empowered your earliest disciples to not hesitate on a lack of motivation or to um, 
to not follow through with what you clearly laid out for them. Lord, I'm convinced that it's their close proximity to the resurrection that fueled that. Lord, help us to see the risen Savior in every facet of our lives. Help us, Lord, to cling to that truth that because of your resurrection, you are alive and living in us. Lord, I pray that we would change our value systems from the things that this earth screams at us to the things that only heaven can guarantee. I pray, Lord, we'd be faithful to fixate our eyes on the things that would be coming because we know they are coming soon as we're about to sing. So, Lord, help us to be people that walk in eternity, that care about the things of this earth, that care about the life around us, but we're not held back by them. We're not locked into them because we believe that we will be in a better place. We believe that we'll, we will be celebrating with the saints, all the apostles and their heroic deaths, but also our friends like Amy. So prepare us for those days, Lord, by making us obedient today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.